Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. So glad you could be with me for this mini-sode. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly. So in the last mini-sode, we talked about divorce and what the Bible says about it. And in this episode, we're going to be continuing that discussion. And what does the Bible say about divorce when it concerns abuse? If you didn't listen to the last mini-sode, I highly suggest you go back and listen to that one first. There are some things I set up in that conversation that I will continue through in this one, but we will be focusing specifically on this understanding of what happens when there is abuse. Something exciting is in the works, and we are adding a new segment to the Christian Single Moms podcast in which we'd like to feature you. On our website, you can record a question that you'd like to have answered or share something that God has been teaching you in this season. Submissions can be anonymous and may be played right here on the Christian Single Moms podcast. For more details, check out the link down in the show notes. Something I've learned in my season as a single mom is that loneliness actually does not have that much to do with being alone. Hurt from our relationships in the past causes us stress around relationships in the present. And the ways that we have learned to deal with that stress can help us to feel safe, but actually keep us away from the meaningful relationships that we desire. To start to unravel this, to identify your stress style and discover the pathway to healing, you can take our quiz called What's Your Stress Style? And you'll find a link for that down in the show notes. Where I want to start this conversation is actually somewhere back in the middle of the last mini-sode, and that is around the discussion that Jesus has in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 around the grounds of divorce. And in both of those sections, he says, except for sexual immorality. And I noted in that episode that this was Jesus making a ruling on a cultural contextual disagreement of the time between the Pharisees and how in Jesus's comments, he is pointing to the fact that, no, that really is meant for sexual immorality and that those are the grounds upon which this divorce was typically allowed. So there are two points here I want to make in relation to what does this have to do with abuse can abuse be another grounds for divorce? The first point I want to make is I know of very little instances where sexual immorality has not taken place on the part of the abuser. In many instances, if the person is doing some kind of emotional abuse, they're also engaging in typically some kind of spiritual abuse, could be financial abuse, could be physical abuse, but very often involves some kind of sexual abuse as well. And we have to understand when we go back to Jesus's ruling on what is adultery, what constitutes that unfaithfulness, it is not only one person having sex with a person who is not their husband or wife. If we go back to Jesus's comments in Matthew 5, before he talks about divorce, he talks about lust and adultery. And he talks about the fact that 
If you are looking upon another person with lustful intent, you are committing adultery. He is making the distinction that it is an unfaithful intention of the heart that is what is considered the faithlessness of adultery. And so that encompasses a wide variety of behaviors. This encompasses pornography usage. This encompasses voyeurism, emotional affairs, any kind of sexual abuse. This just has such far-reaching implications when we really think about lustful intent and looking upon somebody with lustful intent. So in these instances, the question of whether or not abuse can be grounds for divorce, it's kind of a a non-issue or a red herring because if there is anything that is questionable of a sexual nature on the abuser's part, that's absolutely covered in this discussion about sexual immorality. But the second thing I want to mention here is that it's possible Jesus was not actually giving the only grounds for divorce. As we talked about in the last episode, there is this question that the Pharisees asked Jesus very pointedly about could a woman be divorced for any cause? And that is rooted in a controversy amongst the Pharisees that comes from Deuteronomy 24:1 where it says that a woman could be divorced for any indecency that a man would find in her. There were two basically schools of rabbinic thought that disagreed whether that meant well any indecency like I don't even like the way she cooks all the way down to know actually that any indecency means sexual immorality. Jesus rules in his comments on this controversy, but it's possible that in that ruling, he's not actually laying out all of the grounds for divorce. Whether or not you accept that interpretation, it doesn't really matter because what we do know is if we look at 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually brings up another grounds for divorce for a marriage ending, and it is on the grounds of abandonment. And this is important to note because he's not contradicting Jesus. And if it actually is something that he is pointing back to something we read in the book of Ezra, where you may have competing covenants between your covenant to God and the marriage covenant to this other person. I'll elaborate on all of that in just a moment. But to get us into 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 12, Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the believing wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other translations, it says, is no longer bound. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what Paul is talking about in this context is this new rise in Christianity. And you have people who are converting to Christianity, and they are married to people who are not. And so they're trying to figure out if this is okay or not. What do they need to do? And as I mentioned in the last mini-sode, when we looked at the book of Ezra and the Israelites had recognized they had transgressed the covenant by marrying unbelievers, 
they saw fit to proceed with divorces because there was competing allegiance here and that these foreign wives were leading the Israelites away and into these abominable practices to these false gods. So what's happening here is a similar question of, okay, I'm a believer, but this other person is not. Do I have to get divorced? And Paul is saying in this instance, hey, if you are married to an unbeliever and this person and I'm going to dive into this in a second, where he says, consents to live with you, then let it be so. Paul is saying, you do not have to divorce this person. But what he is also saying, when he says consents to live with you, he's not saying, oh, agrees to have the same house with you and then terrorizes you or mocks your practice of religion, of faith to your God. He's not saying if they agree to be in the same house with you, but will treat you in a way that is dishonorable. He is saying in the translation, if you look at the the word translation here, he's saying to be of one mind, that can you continue on in this covenant as one together. And Paul is saying this because he knows that if the Lord is going to move upon one person's heart, it's possible that the Lord would then move upon the other's heart. And so he doesn't want to give people the impression that they have to get divorced knowing full well that if they can move in accord with one another, that there may be a possibility that that other person will be brought to faith. But Paul then also says, if the unbelieving partner cannot consent to that, cannot consent to be of one mind with you now that you have this allegiance to God, then let it be so. Let it be that you are no longer then bound to this person, that your allegiance to God supersedes your allegiance to this other person. And that's precisely in line with what we saw in the book of Ezra. Furthermore, Paul is saying you have to let yourself off the hook here, that if they don't want to allow you to practice your faith with the Lord and they want to go off in their own direction, it's not on you to bring that person back. How do you know whether or not you could save them? This is his point. His point is if they go off and they continue in their way, you're not going to save them. It's not up to us to be the one to save an unbeliever. Certainly by our example, we can have influence, but we cannot control that person's choice. There are three words every abuse survivor must hear. God hates abuse. Plus One Parents has released a devotional for abuse survivors called Safe Haven, a devotional for the abused and abandoned. Safe Haven is a biblically-based guide to abuse, giving you the tools that you need to identify it, respond to it, and heal from it. Safe Haven is now available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats, and you can locate a link to purchase your copy down in the show notes. So you might be thinking right now, okay, what does any of this have to do with abuse? And what's really critical about this is the understanding of whether or not a person who is abusive is a believer. Are they a believer? That's the question. And if we go to Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a process by which we can determine whether or not a person is a believer. Starting in Matthew 18, 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what Jesus is lining out here in Matthew 18 is a process by which you can confront someone who is unrepentantly sinning against you. And it doesn't say in what ways they might be sinning. So we absolutely can conclude that this certainly means abusive means. And so if this person is lying, if they are manipulating, if they are cheating, if they are controlling, if they are doing any number of abusive things, and you bring it to them, and they don't repent, that you can get other people involved. And if in addressing it then, if having, Jesus is describing an intervention here, basically. And if in this intervention, this person continues to persist in the things that they're doing, and in many cases with an abuser, we know that they're going to persist because they don't think they're doing anything wrong, then Jesus says there does come a point where you need to recognize that this person is not demonstrating the fruits of repentance. They're not demonstrating that they have surrendered their lives to God as their Lord. And so because he's talking to a Jewish audience, he uses the terminology here of consider them a Gentile or a tax collector. And we know, if if we understand the Jewish context, to say somebody is a Gentile is to say that without equivocation, they are an unbeliever. They are not of the Jewish heritage. They are not of the children of Abraham. They are not of the OT covenant. So this is a first indication that this person is not spiritually among one of us. So now we see that there's a change in the nature of the relationship, that where at the beginning of this passage, Jesus is saying, if a brother sins against you, but by the end now, this person is a Gentile or a tax collector. They're a person that would not be seen as part of your inner circle. They would not be someone that you would be entrusting fellowship with. Now, in this, our heart positioning, though, can know this person is an unbeliever. They are opening their lives to sin. And while I do have compassion for that, I have to, as a believer, recognize that I need to distance myself from this situation. That while I would pray for repentance for them, while I would pray that they would come to know the Lord as their Savior, that it's not for me to get in the middle of that process. And this is where a lot of Paul's teachings really start to come together when we look at the ability to determine whether or not someone is an unbeliever. Because if he is saying that you're no longer bound, it's the same thing as what Jesus is saying here, where we are now looking at this person as not someone who is a close confidant, but someone who is outside of this fellowship. And that corresponds with Paul's teachings that we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, that when it comes to our deepest intimate relationships with the people that we are trusting, with the people that we are vulnerable with, that these need to be individuals that have also submitted their lives to God so that we can share in the fellowship and the unity of the Holy Spirit in our relationship because we know we're safe with one another as believers. And when we bring an unbeliever into that fold, when their life is not submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit and to the Lordship of Christ, then we cannot always trust what their motives are and we cannot entrust ourselves to them. 
and where an abuser has already shown that they will exploit that vulnerability, that is where we can understand that this person, whether by their mouth or their actions, is saying, I will not live in one mind with you unless that one mind is my mind, unless we are doing this my way. And the thing that's very important to recognize in this is that abuse is an idolatry of self. It is where everyone and everything is exploited to exalt one's self. So where an abuser is fixated on exalting themselves, then it is impossible while they are in that condition for them to simultaneously become humbled and to submit themselves to the lordship of Christ. Being an unbeliever does not mean whether I affirm with my mouth that I believe in God. Even we can see this throughout the Bible, even the demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God, but they did not surrender to him. They did not surrender to his authority. And that is the same thing that we're looking at here. We cannot listen to whether or not a person says they are a believer. We have to look at the fruit of their lives. We have to examine if there is the fruit of repentance there that brings one's self under the submission to the Lordship of Christ. The last point I want to make about this is Paul's comments in 2 Timothy 3. And in this section of scripture, he's not specifically talking about divorces, but he is talking about people who are going to be within our congregation of believers, but are not truly themselves following the way of Christ. In 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, so looking like a believer, but denying its power. Then he says, avoid such people. Avoid such people. He's not saying, oh, except if that's your husband. He's saying we are supposed to avoid these people who are going to come into our homes and into our communities and wreak havoc for their own selfish gain. Interestingly enough, he actually goes on to say, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So what he is actually saying is that these kinds of people, and specifically and statistically, we know most of these abusers are men, but specifically these men are going to look for what Paul calls weak women. Now, Paul, I'm not going to take that as a slight at all. I'm going to say that he knows that women are so vulnerable. He knows, and we know this from the fall, that where Adam was going to be more concerned for the rest of his life with toil, that Eve was going to be concerned for the affections of her husband. That's all the way back in Genesis. So it's not a surprise that so many of these who would glorify themselves will go prey upon what Paul is calling weak women, but just vulnerable women, just women who, like you and like me, want to be loved and that we may be seeking for things and we may end up seeking them in the wrong places. And we may be able to be deceived by people such as these. So Paul is saying, not only are they in the congregation, 
they're in these families. And we need to get away from people like this. So again, if we look at the totality of Scripture, this question of whether or not abuse is grounds for divorce is actually truly such a distracting question. Because while as Christians, as the church argues about whether or not this is grounds, from a legalistic perspective, we are distracted from the work of the enemy through abusers in our households and in our congregations. Because what ends up happening, and I know I don't have to tell many of you this, but what ends up happening is that while there is all of this fear and shame and condemnation thrown around about divorce and when it's okay and when it's not and all that kind of stuff, we're not paying attention to the damage that is happening in the lives of the families that are enduring this kind of abuse. Now, what I want everybody to know is that I am not pro-divorce. I am pro-godly relationships. In these last couple of episodes, I have laid out a theology of divorce that is probably more detailed than what most of us have gotten in church. I didn't get any of this from church. This all came from time with the Lord and time spent researching and talking and reading and all this kind of thing. And if we knew more about what God said about abuse and what He says about divorce, then we could actually have stronger marriages. And that's what I'm about. That's what these episodes are about. It's about knowing our God's heart for us and for our relationships and how He would work through them and the places where we're getting stuck. Because honestly, if we have a God-hates-divorce theology, we've missed it. And it's not my intention to shame the church. It's not my intention to condemn the church. I love the church. I have had so many beautiful, good experiences in the body of Christ. I love the church. It's my intention to empower the church, that we would read this word for ourselves, that we would know what it says, we would know the love of our God, and that we would know how to walk in it. It's my hope that something I have said in this episode has just deepened your understanding of God's love for you and maybe your curiosity for what else that He wants you to know. We'd love to invite you to get involved with the Plus One Parents community. You can join us on Facebook or Instagram at plusone.parents. And on Facebook, you can join our private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Also, at plusoneparents.org, we are constantly adding new resources related to all of the topics that we cover here on the Christian Single Moms podcast. That's everything from parenting to dating to spiritual and emotional well-being. If you'd like to stay up to date on the new resources as we release them, you can join our mailing list there as well at plusoneparents.org. I'm so grateful that you're a part of this community and that you were able to join me for this episode today. I pray always that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.